Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm really excited about this one and I've dragged Nina along with me because she's excited too. Nina, how are you and uh, what are we doing today? Oh, very good. Thank you very much. So today we are we're going to take a look at uh, the the ever intriguing, fascinating, and challenging story of the Franklin Expedition, and we're doing that today because we're talking to uh, Ernest Coleman, who is a former naval man, polar adventurer, and a historian who's written twenty two books. Now I'm absolutely jealous, including Khaki Jack, the Royal Navy Division of the First World War, the intriguingly titled The Pig War. But today he's here to talk to us about his newest book, No Earthly Pole, The Search for the Truth About the Franklin Expedition, 1845. Welcome, welcome, sir. Hello, and thank you for inviting me. We're delighted to have you today. So um, uh, Chris and I had a bit of a, well, we, we had a bit of a wrestling match on this one, and we've agreed that with all the questions that we have that we're going to take turns asking you. Um, while I'm a 19th century historian, I am not a I'm not an expert on polar history, but it has been something I've been fascinated with for quite a while. And of course, the the thing and the question which occupied so much of the latter part of the 19th century, well into the 20th, and here we are in the 21st, is the story of the Franklin expedition and what actually happened. So um what what got you interested in in the expedition in the first place? Well, one of my last jobs in the Navy was <clears throat> to, uh, as a recruiting officer for Lincolnshire. So while I was there, and I actually live in Lincolnshire uh, now, whilst I was there, I thought, um, it's too much RAF. You know, we're all Air Force all over the place. Um, and yet we've got to find naval history and great names like um, Flinders, Bass, Banks, um, and of course, uh, Franklin, the, the leading four, if you like, or John Smith, who brought po Pocahontas over, comes from there. And so I wrote a book, and uh, it's my very first book called The History of the Navy in Lincolnshire. Right. And the more I looked into Franklin, the more I kept thinking, there's something odd here. You know, he just disappeared. And up until Scott, uh, expedition, of course, to the Antarctic, 
uh, people always considered the Franklin expedition as the one big uh, mystery and naval disaster, if you like. Right. So I decided to look further and further into it. And then I managed to persuade the Admiralty to uh, let me go up there and have a look. Had you had any um, Arctic experience prior to this? I know you're, you know, you you were a, a naval man for more than 30 years. And so, you know, you've been on all manner of different, uh, you know, expeditions, different craft, submarine, et cetera, et cetera. Had you been to the Arctic before you, uh, before you decided this was a topic that you wanted to, um, to investigate? Uh, is, is this is a sort of cheapskate answer, this is. <laughs> Uh, before, when I was 16, I was on the Art Royal aircraft carrier. Right. And we did uh, Arctic trials or ice trials, whatever you, you choose to call them, um, up into the Davis Straits. Okay. And um, uh, I, I thought it was spectacular because you used to have a thing called Arctic sea smoke. Now, oh. that's, that means there's a mist all over all the water, as far as you can see. And so you appear to be sailing through um, a cloud. Oh, gosh. And uh, I, because I was slightly naughty on one occasion, I was sentenced <laughs> to uh, two hours extra work. And uh, I was sent up to chip the ice off one of the radar uh, domes. Yes. It was a wonderful sensation. But that uh, was the only experience I'd had before. Oh, gosh. The main purpose of the expedition was to find the Northwest Passage. But why is it so important and why is Britain and the Royal Navy trying to secure it? I'm not so sure about the word secure. When Franklin set off, it was pointed out this was a, an achievement for humanity, if they could do it, because to get to, um, if you went westwards and uh, you wanted to reach the Pacific and, and uh, further on it's a long way down right way down past uh, Cape of Good Hope I'm sorry um, uh, the tip of uh, the southern tip of South America whereas if we could go from the north and across the top of uh, Canada and that uh, um, it would make a terrific trading route something interestingly enough that still applies today um, yeah. it would make a great trading route uh, uh, route. And of course, it would be open to everybody. That was the point. If the, the, the Royal Navy discovered it, then great. But we, we weren't going to put customs barriers on it or anything. <laughs> Excellent. Your expedition north, what, and, and I'm so glad you told us of the, you know, sort of your, your first encounter um, uh, and, and the particular punishment, which meant you were spending a, a great deal of time outside chipping ice. Yeah. Um, from from the expeditions, because this was this project was multiple expeditions. Um, it wasn't just one and done. What um what what did you find the region was like in terms of just climate, in terms of ability to travel, and so on and so forth? Well, I, prior to that, I'd never been uh, into the Arctic in the dead of winter. I I, I actually have since, and the the Arctic in winter. Is beautiful, there's mm -hmm. no question of that, but very unfriendly. Mm -hmm. uh, also, uh, you need to go in the summer if you're going to do any research because right. you need the snow to keep, get clear off the land. The, 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 most of the water is going to stay frozen. 
but you you can use the land as a, a means and the ice if, if you you have to but if you're looking for something you need it cleared uh, and that's what it was and it very quickly came to to me that the arctic in summer is can be very unpleasant hmm. um you've got your polar bears that, that that are a threat when you're home because they think you're an upright seal and they you know <laughs> if you're not careful they'll you don't want to end your day looking looking through the rear end of a polar bear pretty much yeah pretty much yes um and it can be unfriendly just the, the same but then again that's just one of life's challenges absolutely and of course you know it, nowadays um the sort of equipment that we might have access to is is you know incredibly different in terms of durability in terms of design in terms of your travels did you did you i mean obviously in order to stay safe you had to, you had to use 20th century technology but um did you were you able to sort of uh, get a grasp do you think of what it would have been like for franklin and his men in the you know the 1845 to uh to try to travel in that area uh, without access to the kinds of, you know, things that we have. Yeah, pretty much the same, because uh, all I had was a tent, and okay. uh, that, that, that was it. In bad conditions, it was pretty awful, particularly wind, because wind tended uh, to flatten the tent. But, of course. Uh, of course. Uh, uh, you've got that, and if you're really unfortunate, as I was on a few occasions, you can get water dripping through uh, the, the holes onto your sleeping bag, which is oh, right. yeah. quite annoying, actually. <laughs> but, but I set up, um, I, I shall stick with my solo expedition. That was the most interesting one. Mm. Uh, the, the reason it's more advantage to be on your own is that even if there's two of you, the chap who's didn't share in the tent with you might have had a bad night's sleep. And then right. you're ready to go, the, and this happened on a few occasions. Yeah, you've got to wait for him to wake up and uh, want to go. Right. So, uh, of course, don't forget it's 24 hours daylight. Yes. Um, so I decided to set off from the camp I ha uh, had and walk as far north as possible onto King William Island, which is one of the central art. Uh, island that's involved in all this and I wanted to see where Franklin's ships had got stuck so mm -hmm. I did quite a lot of walking um, I was armed because mm -hmm. um, you really can't go up there with some means of defence if, if the polar bears decide of course and I saw polar bears and uh, uh, they, I'm probably the wrong shape or something <laughs> <laughs> thankfully thankfully and um uh, they didn't uh, only on one occasion uh, did they come for for us and luckily we were just about to board a helicopter but on this i'll go back to the solo one it was about 40 miles and i did do it in two days uh and i thought well this is just the way they would have done it so mm -hmm. on their feet get going it's right. not a very smooth passage. The the surface of the ground is fractured rocks. And uh, that's why 
occasionally you take to the ice because right. the ice can be um but but it was, it was just a, an interesting exercise and i found out that uh, i didn't something i didn't know is that when it gets very cold the propane doesn't work oh so God. i couldn't eat anything there was nothing to put but then again uh, god built me like this and I'm all right. I'm all right. Right. Yeah. yeah that, gosh, there's an unexpected development for you. Yeah. Did Did you have any problems with navigation? Because I know that Franklin's crew suffered from this. A ship's compasses couldn't pick up north because it's constantly shifting. Did you have any problems with that? Uh, no, because compasses weren't a great deal. Uh, I always used to think my compass pointed to the rifle. It's the first bit of metal <laughs> that it could, you know, point at. Right. Um, no, the navigation wasn't really difficult because you're walking up. I, I always kept the coast about a mile from where I was walking. And mm-hmm. if you keep the coast in sight, then uh, it's not a problem. Right. Yes. Some of the areas are, but my hated favourite place was a place called Wall Bay. Mm. And in summer, it's notorious that there seems to be a fog hangs over that always so again i got closer to the shore so for for that but it was very strange it was fog like i've never known before it was was like being in your own sort of little cave that Mm. you were moving forward and your your visibility was matter of just a few yards gosh so uh so I, i plodded on through that quite concerned that a, a polar bear would, would be perfect to, to spring out right. at you. Absolutely. They, they obviously didn't fancy me, so uh, nothing <laughs> happened. And coming out the other side, generally anyone um, capable of a decent walk could, could manage it. There's nothing right. particularly special about that. Right. So um, go, going back to the expedition, um, what kind of man was Sir John Franklin, and um, was he a good choice to choose to? Hang on, start that again. <laughs> See, it's always me. Um, so, what kind of man was Sir John Franklin, and was he a good choice to lead this expedition? I think he was a perfect choice. Um, he was always extremely popular with his men uh, and his leadership. He had a massive experience, uh, even when. Um, uh, as a midshipman, he did. He took part in Arctic expeditions. When he uh, was made uh, captain, he led two overland expeditions, very, very important ones. And um, he didn't believe in... Uh, they used to call it Franklin's Paradise when he had a ship, as the captain of a ship. And he didn't believe in the kind of punishment that we all... No, by tradition, was meted out to uh, sailors. They didn't ship ice off for, for, for a couple of hours. They got a good uh, cat's uh, cat, you know, taking the cat's uh, punishment. Right. And he didn't believe in that. Uh, also, in his early life, he had a lot of interesting things. He uh, fought alongside Nelson uh, twice at the um, Battle of Copenhagen and, of course, the Battle of Trafalgar. Um, now he was a very popular man in naval terms mm. so those sorts of things if you're going to take a crew of men into what is essentially the unknown um, and have them over winter uh, I would imagine 
and you know you can speak to this as a navy man yourself that those leadership qualities the ability to inspire um you know at this point um, your men uh i would imagine that that would be that would be an important factor in the success of anything that you were doing yeah i i, I entirely agree you couldn't have a captain bligh um up there that would work uh franklin was a good leader he'd, he'd never failed he wasn't very good at diplomacy. Uh, he, one time, he was the Lieutenant Governor of Tasmania. Right, right, I remember. And uh, he fell out time and again with the politicians, and the politicians eventually had him removed because he, he didn't like the way they were treating the locals, and uh, his wife built a museum. Uh, you know, they, they did a lot of very, very good work for the benefit of people. And uh, the politicians were saying more or less, you don't have this business for that. You know, you, you, that's not what you're here for. Right. Um, but uh, I think he was probably very happy to have that opportunity to, uh, to, to lead the expedition. He, he'd been to the Arctic previously as well, hadn't he? Uh, well, yes, he had, he had two massive overland expeditions. Um, one to... Well, it was the Mackenzie River, and the other one, name escapes me for the moment, but, uh, uh, oh, the Copper, uh, Copper Mine River. Yeah. And um, they were in themselves successful. He had a bit of rotten luck because he had some poor condition. He was supposed to meet another ship on the uh, west side, uh, west corner, if you like, of uh, North America, mainland. And he missed it by 150 miles. Oh, gosh. Now, for that, he had to walk hundreds and hundreds of miles back. To oh, my goodness, yes. Up. But he, um, he got through, but it was very, very difficult for him. And that showed terrific leadership. Another, one of the aspects that has been um, considered in recent studies of, of Franklin's expedition is the way that they were equipped and provisioned. And so um, what, what is your, how do you understand um, that particular aspect and how it might have affected or, or not affected the outcome in terms of equipment, food? Yeah, yeah. You know, the ships, first of all, they, they, they were experienced ships, if you like. They'd been right. around for a while, and they'd been to the Antarctic, and uh, they were known to be good ice vessels, if you like. But where the uh, state of the art came in was when they put uh, a steam engine on board. Right. And the engine, I think they took the engine from the Greenwich Light Railway. Yeah. Uh, and uh, of course, one of the sh um, uh, axle shafts would have been attached to a, a, a propeller outside. And uh, they really thought about this because they thought, well, if you can get trapped in the ice. So uh, in the stern, they had what called, they called a, a, a well. And that's where, if you were going into ice, you could lift the propeller out. Of course, of course. Now, coal was the only fuel they could use. They used it as ballast for a start. That was a good, good, yeah, common sense thing because you could always replace it with with rock and and uh, yes. keep it going. Uh, but um, 
it didn't work all that well. It was it was a new technology to have uh, right. ships right. with the engines engines in. It was there, and it really wasn't. It didn't have the punch to get you through ice or anything like that. But right. if I can go to food, food is an astonishing story. Half um, of the supply of canned food that. Uh, uh, was supplied to Franklin on the two ships, Terra and Erebus. Um, the, the other half was left in Portsmouth Dockyard because they were finding another ship, you know, supplying other ships with it. Right. And guess what they found? When Franklin had gone, he'd lost all communication with him. The stench from the food in Dock, Portsmouth Dockyard was leading to complaints from people who lived around there. Oh, that's right. Absolutely yes. rotting away. Yeah. Now you've got to say, well, Franklin's got the same thing. Right. And uh, that's why I think it was about 12,000 tank cannons were put on board the mm. two ships. Right. And yet only 600 have been accounted for. Now, because metal, we come to this later, metal is so rare in, in the Arctic. It's just a little bit of copper, but that's it. That's it. Um, they decided they, they would have only thrown it overboard. But yeah. the thing that they, they had there was, was lead in the cans. There were seals with lead. It's lead was useful for musket balls and, and a variety of uh, uh, such matters. So that's why on Beachy Island, which is where the first evidence was found, right. the, ma the major thing there was a forge. And that's what they did. They got empty cans of, of the food uh, and then melted the lead from the tins. And uh, it, it's still there today, examples of those, those, those tins. But to, fight, to, to be able to trace no more than 600, out of thousands means that they were just dumped, got rid of them as quick as you can. Right. They wouldn't have had to have gone short of food. Um, one of the favourite, uh, killing birds, seabirds and things like that, and then they were hung in the rigging to dry right. out. And, they're, 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 and of course, once they got further south, having gone into the Lancaster Sound and then worked their way through the Arctic, uh, there was... A lot of caribou, and there are musk oxen, and uh, even polar bears. Although polar bears, you had to be careful of because the livers of polar bears are poisoned. Right. Uh, exactly. You know, yeah. you know that. So, uh, food could survive. It was enough to survive, and it must have been at their time because, frankly, making the decision to carry on. Right. Right. Still, that requires a great deal of extra effort if you're going to hunt and, you know, feed that many men on two ships, which I assume, you know, must have provided quite, quite, quite the challenge for them in terms of survival. The officers those days were all trained in hunting, right? Horseback or, or whatever. Sure. Um, sure. And the animals, as I experienced, they don't quite know if humans are friendly or not. They'll come up to you and stare right. at you, and uh, right. uh, and 
doing the, the musk ox, I once saw a wonderful sight where they saw me and retreated into a large circle with all <laughs> the heads pointing out. Right, right. Uh, and then I watched as a, on another expedition when uh, a friend of mine, he advanced to the musk ox, whereupon the musk ox charged, he turned sensibly and ran off, and immediately the musk ox stopped. <laughs> to waste energy chasing chasing something you can't eat exactly exactly interesting interesting circling back to the lead some of the first artifacts that were discovered were of course the graves of torrington brain and the local boy to me hartnell their autopsies revealed that they had high levels of lead in their systems which some people have argued that lead poisoning could have been a, a major factor to the, the expedition but it's also quite contentious isn't it it's totally total nonsense uh, even to me, as a non-specialist and, and, and that sort of thing, I knew that they lived on water supplied through lead pipes. They dined off pewter plates, which, uh, you know, contains lead. Um, most of them came from towns and cities where they'd grown up with uh, lead. Uh, it gets murkier, too, because... One of the, the expedition that claimed all this, he said to me that what they did with the lead, I didn't know this, but uh, the amount of lead in a human hair varies along its length. Mm. And so what they'd done was cut all the high bits out and they're the one that, that was um, tested. And that led to the, actually they died of pneumonia um, or tuberculosis. That's what mm. they died of. It got even better for me, at least, was when a Canadian university went to Nelson Stockyard in Antigua and dug uh, into a naval cemetery there from the same period. And guess what? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly the same level of lead in in the the bodies. Hmm. Right. So that... that gives us another perspective in terms of how we might think about uh, the physical outcomes and the health outcomes for the sailors. Is if this is, you know, uh, certainly one one thought about how they might have died, um, but you know, causes us to step back and start considering other things that might have happened. But but we do know that something must have gone terribly wrong. Because, you know, of course, they didn't survive and uh, multiple, multiple expeditions, including your own, to try to understand what happened. What do you think went wrong with the terror and the Erebus in in terms of your own work and your travels there? How how might you suggest uh, to or or what do you suggest to your I mean, I I got a chance to read the book, but I'm not going to give it away. Um, But. What, what would you suggest to potential readers of the book that they consider uh, the, the actual the actual thing that might, things that might have happened to the sailors? Yeah, I, if, if we're talking about the, the position suddenly where the uh, expedition went wrong, was right. very very simple and totally unexpected. Mm. Uh, when they came down Peel Sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were it was, it was they must have been really very cheerful because they were all heading in the right direction but yeah. then suddenly they hit ice no big deal that's what uh you know expeditions are about 
yeah. I knew that uh, the best thing to do, well, you've got a choice, you've got to retreat it without, you know, having got that far, they, they right. wouldn't want you to do that. Uh, you got in the ice, the ice builds around you, and you're locked in the ice for the winter. That was fine, everything went fine, and they did that. Their, um, what we used to call in my time in the Navy, sort of sods operas and <laughs> entertainment, <laughs> things like that, to get them through. Right. There would have been hunting ashore uh, because you could walk ashore from right. ships, no question of that. Uh, they put up um, markers that uh, indicated, could indicate the, the direction of drift, and, and sure. so I think it was fine. Then, to their surprise, when summer came, it remained frozen uh, uh -huh. instead of uh, coming through. Again, they thought, well, okay. Well, Franklin said, you know, that, uh, oh, I'll stick it out for uh, another year uh, until I give it a go next year. Now, now this is uh, two years in total of, of being stuck in that, that ice. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. They were spent a lot of time ashore. We know there have been some camps ashore that uh, mm. uh, this would almost certainly be hunting expeditions. But one thing that they couldn't cater for, I don't believe, and evidence all suggests this, is that, that, that you needed some something to fight scurvy with. Right. There was lots of lot of greenery or anything, no trees, nothing at all. Right, right, um, right. And scurvy would have been a problem. Then June, the following year, after they got stuck in the second year, Franklin died. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's not about, you know, we, this is something they could have handled. They, they knew that this was a possible. He was considered an old man at the time then. He was about 59, coming 60. Uh, Crozier uh, took over then. Uh, he, would, he was an experienced 
uh, seamen and Arctic, uh, uh, had Arctic experience. But then when they stayed into uh, um, 1848, so this is the, the third year they're in there now, right. it didn't break up again. Right. And this was suddenly the situation changed dramatically. Also, what are the state of the ships? Because they managed to resist ice pressing on them and, and, and all the rest. They probably said, well, look, you know, we're not, we're not going to last another year here. Scurvy, I think, would have been, would have broken out. And it's a, it's a desperate, uh, the threatening disease. Yes. And so they uh, decided that they'd make a, a, a go for it. 105 men landed on that uh, shore. Mm -hmm. uh, we know now, because they found the ships, and uh, we know that they secured what we call secured the ships for sea. Mm -hmm. Battened down the hatches, did everything so it'll keep afloat. Uh, if, if, if it's not crushed, it will stay uh, afloat. They made a wood after all. Um, yes. and, um, they then, 105 men came ashore and had to tow, not over the ice, that people think they did the ice, they went over land. Right. I actually found an unknown camp by Crozier. And it's very, very interesting that there, I found the shape of a boat in rocks, and that is clearly where that they surrounded with the rocks, probably <laughs> took the insides out to do repairs and things like that, where it's propped up with these rocks, and then they just pull it off uh, afterwards. If you've got men with scurvy, uh, it's a terrible condition. They, they can hardly eat. Uh, right. the, the jaws swell, the lips swell, the tongue swells. And energy, trying to pull anything or weave on it, it, it debilitating is the is the way. And yet they had to do it. How much? How much? It, it, do you have a sense of of um, how much the the loaded boats, which I assume they're either trying to pull across, and I know there you you spend some time in one of the chapters describing what the surface is like with slabs. Yeah. Heaving and crossed and so on. Mm -hmm. So, uh, just to give just to give our listeners a sense, what are we talking about in terms of what something like that might have weighed, um, distributed among men who are clearly debilitated, yeah, yeah, weak, yeah, perhaps yeah. you know, as you're saying, they're not able to eat frequently, they're ill. Um, physical challenge must have been tremendous. It absolutely would. Um, we talked about leadership, right, um, and leadership and teamwork. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody wants to let down anybody else, and they're all going to yeah. give it a try. The boats themselves uh, they would all have been 27-foot whalers. A large right. boat, right. Yeah. heavily built, simply on, on the um, uh, principle that they're going to be operating in ice. Of course. Yeah. So they would have been very heavy. Uh, we're not quite sure um, how many they drag with them. Right. It's probably no more, well, four would have been maximum. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Uh, and they would have done it in relays. You know, sure. sort of the amount they needed to get it moving. Right. They would be taken over by a similar amount. It's it, normal, 
organisation that, that uh, would have aided them there. And they did a tremendous job. They, they got all the way down to uh, uh, the uh, south-west corner of Prince of Wales Island. We do know that Franklin sent uh, Lieutenant Gore and Lieutenant DeVoe uh, on an expedition when the ships were still locked in the ice right. to look at the route. Right. Exactly. And they would have said, you can't go over the ice. The ice is the obvious choice because it would slide. It would slide, yeah, exactly. But you've only got to look at the ice in uh, Victoria Sound. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and it's masses, huge on the road, uh, on even uh, ice, the, the size of houses, you know, great blocks. You just couldn't do it. Right. Um, so, but, but the land is relatively uh, flat. Mm -hmm. And so off uh, uh, they went. And that brings us to that bit, was Erebus Bay. Erebus Bay, I think what happened, no one's really put this before, we know that there were remains, in fact I found some, uh, further to the south. Mm -hmm. So right. they, they, they split one way or another, their division. I'm convinced that the division was not something caused by conflict or anything else. I think it really was that some of the men just couldn't do the job. They couldn't pull the boats anymore. And I like to think what I would have done, and I believe this is what Crozier um, did, was to treat it like a First World War casualty clearing station. Yes. He yeah. said to all the ones who couldn't make it, all right, man, look, here's the thing, what we're going to do, we're going to leave you a boat or two boats and, uh, you know, we'll leave you food, which we know they did, um, which still existed. We're going to leave and you will stay here until the ice melts. Now, Gore and DeVoe must have found that the bottom bit of uh, the ice was melting during the summers. That's, that's not a big deal. That's the way it works. Even if the top of the you know, straits are thick with ice, right. the bottom bit turns, because you've got the warm Pacific um, you know, effect. And so having done that, they would have probably left them with um, a few arms, uh, and perhaps a couple of volunteers, you know, so we'll look after and we'll, we'll do this up and, and the other. Uh, while we go. And so just hang on here, keep yourself alive. The ice will melt, get your boats on the water and then head off. They didn't really have much other choice, really, but in hindsight, it's always twenty twenty. but was Crozier's plan to head south a, a good idea, considering would, it, would they have been better off to stay with the boat with uh, Terra and Erebus? There, there were a couple of op uh, options. Uh, Sir John Ross, in one of his expeditions, uh, left a ship uh, across something called the Boothia Peninsula. Hmm. Uh, and, but I believe, and I'm not loading this, uh, there are rumours that when did they, Ross abandoned that ship, uh, the natives actually sort of got on board and stripped it and there would be nothing left. 
So it doesn't immediately cut your options in about half. You could have tried to retreat, but uh, it was too late once uh, they, when they first met the ice, they could have uh, retreated, but they wouldn't want to do that. And uh, so um, they, co they couldn't move from there to the ships. Uh, I can't think of anything else that was open to them. So faced with this sort of a challenge, um, what can you tell us about Crozier as a leader? I mean, you know, we've, we've spoken at length and you've, you've reminded us of, of Franklin's wealth of experience um, and his Arctic experience. What kind of a leader um, was Crozier, Crozier meant to be? Um, I mean, he's second in command here. He, of course, is going to, you know, one assumes step up and was ready to step up into such a leadership position if needs be. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I've met one of those um, descendants, actually. Oh, you did? That's yeah, right. Yeah, I yeah. mentioned that in the book, yes. And, and he'd got the middle name, Rawdon, Rawdon Crozier. Right. Uh, was, um, I, to have got to be a captain in the Navy, you have to have certain skills because you're going to be a danger elsewhere. elsewhere. Right. Uh, there, there's decades and centuries even of experience of who's good and who's the one to take off. I can't think of any reason why Crozier, who's a good seaman, we know we know he can, he can handle ships. If he can handle ships, he has to be able to handle men. Right. Um, and I, I, I've never come across any complaints about Crozier. Um, and I, I think he was certainly adequate, even if he might not have been brilliant, but he was, he was good enough. And to persuade his men that we're going to depart these, you know, leave these ships, get ashore. And he wasn't using methods of uh, threats of disciplinary uh, right. punishments right. to do it. It just wouldn't work. You know, they wouldn't, uh, wouldn't have allowed it. And they were acting as teams when they were dragging those boats. The boats wouldn't have moved if they hadn't. Right. All those points to the fact that I believe that Crozier was a very good leader. What kind of relics have been left behind? Because unlike other shipwrecks and things where um, in more populated areas where bits go missing and people find them all the time, <laughs> there's not many people traipsing around the Arctic lifting things. And um, they keep find, I know they keep finding odds and sods. Uh, well, we, we have found, or, or the ships have been found, uh, Erebus in uh, Queen Maud Gulf, again, which is to the south of that ice that they had to, so it was clearly drifted right the way through into Queen Maud Gulf. Mm -hmm. And then a uh, rather odd one, uh, the, te the Terror uh, drifted against the, the um, tide, if, if you like, uh, the, the flow of the water uh, and drifted into what had, you know, this for the chances, what previously known as Terror Bay. And Terror Bay, uh, sorry, the Terror itself uh, is in a very good condition and it displays all the bits of our, our ideas about we've got to secure for sea. Right. Batten the hatches and, and close all the doors, right. everything uh, to be ready to go. 
Interesting. It's um, a marvelous thing to find. Yeah, yeah. And you found, um, in addition to what you mentioned um, earlier in in the podcast, um, you know, a section of rock which which um, you know may have supported a boat for repairs. You, yes. I think you you mentioned in your book that you found one or two other relics that you you are um, convinced are related to the Franklin expedition. Can uh, can you tell us a, tell us a little bit about those? I hope I haven't overegged it. <laughs> because, right. it was, really, I remember there was at least one though that I know yeah, you. It's quite quite cool. um, One of the maps showing um, where the, the route that um, Franklin's men took, mm-hmm. um, I think, has been copied and turned the wrong way round. Oh. I mentioned this in the book. Yeah. Because it matches a particular area on the way south. Right. Uh, what if you turn it turn it round? I went to visit that, and the very very strange. I, I I must admit, it made me almost jump out of my skin. Oh God! I came down and I found uh, a shape of an arrow made of rocks pointing to this spot. Oh, yeah. Wow. So I I went along the beach there, climbed up uh, one of these eskers. These eskers are sort of inland beaches. Right. And there were six row uh, a row of six, what just looked like graves. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. And uh, uh, no one's the, the Canadians um, don't see. They don't really want. It's a bit political now. They don't want to do too much up there because of their own political problems they've got. Right. Um, But they they were a shock just to see that. Um, The only thing of any tiniest piece of consequence was walking along a beach uh, within Lady Franklin Bay and coming across a toggle. And a wooden hand-carved toggle, which were exactly the type that you use on sledge harnesses. Mm. Um, yeah. And uh, drive that. So that I, I brought that back and gave it to the Canadians at Yellowknife, and there it's in their museum and whatever. Um, the only other one, particularly, I wasn't very well. And in a tent, and I was in a spot for two days at least, hoping for changing conditions of the weather as much as anything. Yeah. And I thought I'd have a walk around. Well, just behind me was a slope, and I went up this slope, and that's where I found cairns, that shape of the boat, and everything. Right. So I have, it's not, this is not official, but I, <laughs> I call it uh, Camp Crozier. And you could see they built cairns that could be seen from the north so that people coming after you, and I bet what part of the system would have been sort of scouts to go ahead to to find a place to to rest. And um, it's on the edge of Seal, northern edge of Seal Bay, another bay, yeah. Right. Um, I can't say I came away with anything else mm-hmm. in material terms right apart from that Phil, that's it that's it's quite interesting and um 
you know, again, causes us to return to the larger question of, you know, of what happened, where did the men go? And, you know, um, there, there is, of course, and, and you, you discuss this in the book, um, there is a belief from the Inuit oral tradition um, and an analysis of bones, which suggests the possibility of cannibalism. And I know you, you, you deal with that pretty straightforwardly in the book, but perhaps for the podcast listeners, um, you know, you could just quickly touch on. on uh, um, it's very murky, very, very murky. This is, there was a chap who was a um, Hudson Bay employee, Dr. John Ray. Right. Yes. Who seems to have had a pathological hatred of the day. <laughs> Oh gosh! <laughs> and I can pinpoint it. Um, during the Franklin searches, two naval officers were sent south to to get a message to the Admiralty that where where the different ships were. And uh, they turned up at Ray's fort, you know, where where he was in charge of this sort of little district, right. And uh, he was a bit put out for the start. You know, where did you come from? And, you know, he's not actually invited here. Um, but it got worse because they were there for about two months. They couldn't move out. Oh, my. Called them self-sufficient donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he wrote this down. Now, one of them was Lieutenant Hoover. He uh, went and sort of told the... Uh, Ray, that he was writing a book about his experiences. And he said, oh, I was talking to some of uh, your your team, and you've had cannibalism here. Interesting. And Ray said, first denied it, and then he said, well, I don't want you to write about it, okay? Nobody else knows. Let's keep it quiet. Mm. Uh, so he had this experience. When he... Um, went north on another to try and find the Northwest Passage for right. himself in the Hudson Bay Company, he uh, met the Netzelik tribe. The Netzelik tribe are notorious. They um, drove, are driven, they're a very aggressive tribe. They've driven all other tribes back. There's a lot of research done into this. They took over this part of King William Island, exactly the same place that um, uh, Franklin's, that they were really once had difficulty going any further with scurvy and all the rest of it. He knew that the um, Inuit had a tradition, actually, of cannibalism. And you can understand why, you know, if Granny, not, she's not helping out, so she might make a nice swivel to get us through the next bit. Yeah. Uh, this is not at all uh, unusual. So I'm convinced that Ray sort of fed them information, and, or, or not information, but uh, tales of uh, cannibalism. This went in, he reproduced it later as their idea, not his idea. And that was a, a, a real insult to those men hmm. and then the, uh, lately uh, bones were looked at these cut marks on them and they all said oh yes obviously this is quite clearly um, 
cannibalism. In fact, it wasn't. They're all signs. Uh, I've gone to saw York to look at bones there from battlefields and, and whatever. And just the same, exactly the same. And they've got most of the um, cuts are on the hands, on the remains of the hands. That's someone defending themselves. The idea that um, cannibalism should be bowled out straight away. The only way it could work was if they were attacked by the native, by the Netzelik, because the Netzelik thought all their birthdays had come at once. It was all these resources, you know, metal, wooden, large wooden boats, all sorts of things, that they just couldn't get their hands on anywhere else. Uh, it was an easy target. Then the next thing they came out with and said was, ah, well, clearly wrong. Um, the Nitzelik tribe are actually a, a Stone Age people. All their tools are made of slate and, um, you know, stones mount, uh, mounted as weapons or whatever, which is nonsense because uh, Ross, again, um, John Ross, abandoned two ships in the Nitzelik area. One with the Victory and the Cruisenstern. Uh, and you can still there go there today and see great big cogwheels made of metal. The Netsalit had absolute access to metal they'd never had before. And there's no doubt about it that these poor men were hacked down and killed. There was also a suggestion that because there was a lot of damage to finger bones found that they would have been cut off to frostbite. For example, uh, Ranulph Fiennes cut the end of his fingers yes, off. Yes, that's right, yes, yes. But, um, there was a suggestion that because there were a lot of finger bones found that it had actually been the hip surgeons removing frostbitten limbs. Yeah, but other bones are on the long limbs. Mm. Now, uh, I, I have suggested, and everyone agrees from these uh, uh, who's been up there and talked to the uh, native people, was that if you attacked someone and killed them, you had to mutilate the body. There's no question of that, because the body or spirit would get up and then pursue you. Yeah. That was a firm belief. And so uh, I mentioned in the book that they, they would have just hacked into the bodies, broken the long bones, broken the arm bones, all the rest of it. That's all that damage was. Nothing to do with cannibalism. Yeah. Oh, and, and don't forget, of course, the other thing is there was 40 pounds of chocolate in one of the boats when <laughs> yeah, about 10 years yeah. later. 40 pounds of chocolate. That's a lot of chocolate. <laughs> well, you know, it keeps, of course, and so on. So um, just to uh, just for us to, to round this off, what what is your next project i mean we've we've focused obviously on this book because it's an it's your new one and we want to make sure that um you know people track it down and read it but any any more visits to the arctic um or are you are you headed in a dif different direction um with uh, your no i'm uh, i'm 80 next month and the idea that right. uh, i can right. get back up and try and do that again i think right. is remote i I like puzzles, and uh, one is well, the first one is why why do we have an RAF? What are they, what are they needed for? <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
this day and age, um, and it was really a bad mistake uh, taking the aeroplanes from the army and taking the aeroplanes from the navy and, and creating, and here's the word, independent force. That's the first title they were given. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one project. Another project is um, I've discovered who Jack the Ripper is. Oh, oh boy. There is uh, now I can't tell you anything. Don't tell us now. Don't yeah. tell us. <laughs> but yeah. Um sure. I've got about what 30,000 words down at the moment. Right. And uh so it's an extraordinary story. <laughs> the, the he was a very famous man of his time. All right. Yeah. We should probably leave it at that because otherwise, you know, if you're going to write this book, if you tell us now. You've got to present the case in its whole. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that sounds like a, an, an intriguing potential read, um, which uh, which which I will certainly and it, and, and, and I'm sure Chris, too, will, yeah. will be. Quite interested to see how that one goes, but for now, um, Chris, do you want to re re remind our listeners uh, about the book and where they can find it and so on? Uh, yeah, it is called uh, No Earthly Pole. It's by Ernest Coleman, and you can get it from all good bookshops, uh, including the online one that goes towards uh, sending someone to space. But we're also going to whack it onto the History Hack bookshop as well, so that Ernest gets a bit more of the money, we get a little bit of money, and uh, we're not going to waste it on rocket fuel. <laughs> <laughs> money means the kids can eat now. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> or, or I or I might convince, try and convince Alex to uh, put the money towards us going to the Cocos Islands to look at the wreck of the end, and uh, so I can write about that. It's a lot warmer in the Cocos Islands than it is in uh, the Arctic. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoy this. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you very much Andy. for coming on History Hack today and uh, and and telling us uh, telling us about your own travels and uh, and and your work in terms of uh, unpicking the puzzle of the Franklin expedition and what happened in the end. Thank you very much indeed again for inviting me. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.